Well, I am so delighted to be with you today. And this Second uh, Samuel 23 is a list of David's heroes, of David's mighty men. And I want to speak today on the danger of being half-hearted. The danger of being half-hearted. By way of background, this passage belongs to the conclusion or epilogue of Samuel. The narrator is almost finished reporting a story which climaxes in the deeds and life of King David. At the close of a long reign of 40 years, the narrator gives a list of the heroes of this time and describes a few of their exploits. Their, in, their achievements in battle for the sake of David's kingdom and God's rule through David. We must ask first how and where 2 Samuel 23 fits into the plot structure of the larger story. The Bible begins by revealing to us a creator God who has made our universe, our world, and at the beginning, everything was good and proper. God made humans to be rulers and stewards of his world. The first humans decided, however, to go their own way and believed they could create the good life independently of God. This led to chaos, destruction, and death. God made a new start with Noah and his family, but this too ended up in the confusion and chaos of Babel. Finally, God made his last new start by choosing a man called Abraham, planning that his family should be the means of turning things around. They would display to the rest of the world what it meant to have a right relationship to God, to the Creator God, how to treat each other in a human and truly just way, and also how to be good stewards of the earth's resources. When Abraham's fam family became a great nation, God made an agreement or covenant with them at Sinai to achieve his plan. This covenant is called the Torah. The word Torah doesn't really mean law, it means instruction. It was God's instruction to demonstrate to the world a, a right relationship to God and truly human ways of treating each other. The period following this, however, shows Israel, the people of God, failing miserably to be a blessing to the nations, and everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. Like driving in Kentucky, the guidelines seemed to be in chaos and confusion. So God gave them a king to help administer and enforce the instruction and keep them on track in the covenant the people had made with God. The first king did not fulfill his, this role, so now God brought the man David into the picture. He was anointed king, but he had to wait a long, long time waiting for God to put him on the throne and use him to establish God's kingdom and God's rule in Israel and the world. Great men rarely rise to leadership and stand by themselves. Around a great 
men are other great men, or we could say around uh, with a great man is usually a great woman. Now, I'm from a very long time ago. So, I finished high school in Edmonton, which is about a thousand miles straight north of here. And uh, I think of a great hockey player like Wayne Gretzky. Uh, other sports players like Michael Jordan and Mark McGuire. Your heroes probably come from the Marvel movies. <clears throat> but we can see this in politics or sports. This is the part where I give that cool introduction and show how in touch I am with the world and uh, we can just... <laughs> my son, when, we, when, I was, when, when my son was growing up, he said, Dad, you don't know anything about culture. And I said, yes, I do, culture 3,000 years ago. <clears throat> so we can see this in politics or sports. Where would a captain in hockey like Wayne Gretzky be without great players there to pass the puck so he could score? I was in the locker room. I saw this flash from a basketball game, and it was really cool. This guy ran forward, and then instead of rushing into uh, make the slam dunk, he turned around and passed it back. And that gave another guy a chance to make a very cool long shot into the basket. So, uh, in hockey, uh, for every goal there is an assist. And in 2 Samuel 23, 8-39, we have a list of heroes from David's kingdom. I think you have these places in the United States. In Toronto we have the the Hockey Hall of Fame. I think there's a Sports Hall of Fame uh, somewhere, but that shows my, the extent of my knowledge. Uh, <clears throat> These are the heroes of David's kingdom. It is one of two texts in the epilogue to Samuel. Just a little bit of an overview. The epilogue goes from chapter 21 to 24, and uh, in the way Hebrew literature works is they always repeat themselves. So there's three parts, and each of these three parts is repeated. In chapter 21, 1 to 14, there's a story of guilt and suffering. In 21, 15 to 22, there's a, there's a, there's a section on David's heroes. In chapter 22, there's a long song, and then those three things repeat themselves in the opposite order. Chapter 23, 1 to 7, there's a short song. Chapter 23, 8 to 39, there's another section on David's heroes. And in chapter 24, 1 to 25, there's another story of guilt and suffering. So we're looking at one of the two sections on the list of David's heroes. And it's a very exciting and thrilling list. I don't know whether this has ever been read in your church before. So the other text is 2 Samuel 21, 15 to 22. Three of the men who are just listed as names in our text have stories told about, about them in 2 Samuel 21. And you can go home after the service and see some of the great things that those guys did. And we have further reason to see why they were added to this list. Now just by way of overview, uh, this text is highly structured. And it's basically divided into two parts, the big three and the big 30. 
In between the big three and the big 30 are two smaller sections. There's a smaller section on three unnamed heroes. And there's also a section on two army commanders who were great and mighty men, but they didn't make it into the big three. So we'll see how that works. <clears throat> so first of all, uh, in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11, and 12, we have the big three. Uh, there are difficulties in uh, the text, the transmission of the text, but one of the interesting things is that there's a parallel passage in uh, First Chronicles, and if we look at that parallel passage, we can see uh, one or two things that were uh, missing from Second Samuel 23, and I included those in my translation of the text. So first of all, we're going to look at the big three. Three men are at the top, and uh, they are Yeshbaal the Hachmanite, Eleazar, the son of Dodo, and Shammah, the son of Agay. So let's think about these three men and uh, see how they're much better than Iron Man, Ant-Man, and Spider-Man. Yeshbaal, the Hakmanite. Yeshbaal belonged to the elite core, let's say, of the U.S. Marines. So it, uh, in my translation, I had these are the names of the heroes devoted to David, Yeshbaal, the Hakmanite of the Third Man Company. So if, you, if you're into uh, military hardware and you study the ancient world, in Egypt they had two-man chariots, but the Hittites had three-man chariots. And so uh, uh, the third man is the third man in the chariot, and it becomes... Uh, later on, uh, a name for someone who belongs to the elite core. My son was actually uh, in the U.S. Marines and did five tours of duty. And uh, he also uh, was in one of the elite core. It was called uh, First Anglico. Uh, there's a lot of uh, acronyms in the United States, but I hope you can figure that out. <clears throat> Back in, uh, in my time, uh, I lived during the Vietnam War, uh, we heard of the Green Berets, the Green Berets. So Yesh Baal was uh, the elite Navy SEAL from the Omega team, or whatever you want to call him. He was a one-man army. He was swinging his battle axe against 800 at one time. Astonishing. Notice the second man, Eliezer, the son of Dodo. Notice that it says in verse 9, and after him. Do you see that? Do you see that? It says, and after him. That means they're ranking them. So there's a, it, it, even in the big three, there's a number one, there's a number two, and there's a number three. There's a gold, there's a silver, and there's a bronze. So you have Yeshbaal, and then after him is Eliezer, and then after him is Shammah, the son of Agai. So even when you rise to the top, 
and you're in the elite group, they're ranked. <clears throat> what about Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite? Eliezer was a man like Yeshbaal, but not quite as great. As we can see, he was after him. He was number two. And we see here that <clears throat> he was among the three heroes who were with David when they taunted the Philistines at Ephes Damim. That's recorded earlier in the book of Samuel. And the Philistines gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel retreated. He arose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand stuck to the sword. That doesn't even happen in the Lord of the Rings. And the Lord brought a great deliverance in that day, but the people returned only to strip the slain. The rest of them had run away, and they came back only to pick up the goodies. Thirdly, we have Shammah, the son of Agai the Herorite. Uh, interesting how the author tells this story. Uh, we have in verse 11a the personal details of the hero. Then we see in verse 11b the muster of the Philistines, the gathering of the Philistines for, for, for war. And then C, in verse 11c, we have the field of lentils. In verse 11d, we go back to the, the, the Philistines and we see the Israelites fleeing before the Philistines. Then in verse 12a, we have the heroes saving the field. So we have the, the first thing that was mentioned and the third thing that was mentioned put together. In verse 12b, he defeats the Philistines. So we have the hero, the first thing that's mentioned, and the Philistines, the second thing that's mentioned. And then in verse 12c, we have God adding to the victory. The sentences in the middle of this paragraph alternate between the Philistines and the circumstances in Israel. The paragraph begins with the details about the hero and ends with the Lord bringing a great victory. In this way, God and the hero form a ring of allies around the turmoil of battle. I hope you can see that the literary structure is creating a picture for you. I want you to notice that this event occurs in a place called Lechi. There's a problem in the, tran in the, in the translation of the text. <clears throat> and I've translated this as uh, a place called Lechi. Some scholars read this word as a band, but there is good evidence. Uh, good evidence exists that the word should be read as the name of a place, Lechi. This is the name of a place found only one other time in the Old Testament. It's the place where Samson killed a thousand of the Philistines using a jawbone of a donkey. And the phrase, the Lord brought about a great victory, is, are exactly Samson's own words in Judges 15, verse 18. So for you people who follow the plot of the movie very carefully, this is a clever flashback and saying, look, somebody like Samson, maybe better than Samson, is here. Now, I want you to think about this. Shammah put his life on the line for a field of lentils. 
How many of you have eaten lentils? Okay. Well, let me, let me, you may not know how, how, uh, how the ancient uh, societies looked at these things, so let me help you. In, when you. When you grow grains, when you grow grains, there, the grains have different qualities. So one of the highest quality grain is wheat. And then coming down from wheat, we have other things like oats, rye, barley. And at the bottom is lentils. So when you go to the grocery store, every, uh, all of the, uh, everybody gets a chance to buy wheat bread. Well, it didn't work that way 500 years ago. In 500 years ago, only the rich people ate wheat bread, and the poor people had to have their bread out of rye or barley or oats. So you can see how blessed we all are to be eating bread made out of wheat because it has more nourishment in it than, the other, than some of the other grains. So, would you give your life for a field of lentils? What ha what's with this guy? What's with his head? Why didn't he just take off and said, ah, who, who needs a field of lentils? Well, this guy had a theological understanding of the land. He knew that God, that Yahweh was the creator of the heavens and the earth. He knew that Yahweh owns the land because he made it. He knew that Yahweh owns the land because he conquered it. If you read the book of Joshua, you will see that Israel didn't conquer the land. Yahweh conquered the land. The book of Deuteronomy says that God sent the hornets to the Canaanites. God didn't make them go against their will, but he made them willing to go. And so Yahweh owns the land because he made it and because he is the one who conquered it and he rents it, he rents it out to the people of Israel. That's, the, that's what it says in the book of Leviticus. That's why they pay him tithes because Yahweh is the landlord and they're just renters. So that means, you know what that means? Land can never be bought and sold in Israel. If you buy land, all you're doing is buying what it can grow for seven years, and then it will go back to the original owner. <clears throat> King Ahab was out one day, and he saw a nice vineyard that he wanted, and it belonged to another guy called Naboth, or Naboth, however you want to pronounce it. And he said to Naboth, sell me your land. But Naboth didn't want to sell him his land because Naboth was just like Shammah, the son of Agay. He understood that you can't sell the land. It belongs to the Lord. And that's why this guy gave his, gave his life for a field of lentils because he knew that it wasn't just a field of lentils. It was part of Israel that belonged to the Lord. <clears throat> Next we have, so we've looked here at the big three. Number one, number two, number three. Now we have a story of, of a trio, a story of three 
unnamed warriors. Some assume that this story of three warriors refers to the big three. This is not necessarily so. It is more likely that they are a trio of warriors who belong to the Big 30 and who were famous and known not as individuals, but as a group. David is full of longing. His desire for a drink, however, is not ordinary. The narrator uses direct speech to focus on the extraordinary nature of his thirst. David is thinking of the cistern at the gate of his birthplace. You know, not all water tastes the same. And David wanted a drink from the well in the town where he grew up. He can't tear himself away from the idea. He is longing for the living water from the true spring. His men have grasped this, for they are now going to undertake something no mortal would dare to do. Now, what's the problem here? David's hometown is in the hands of the enemy, and he's not free to take a drink there. And so his men are going to once again to pass through enemy lines and draw water from under the noses of yet more enemies. The devotion of David's men is seen in fulfilling merely a nostalgic wish and putting their lives on the line to do so. David, shocked by this, pours it out before the Yahweh as a drink offering, as the blood of the men. This demonstrates not ingratitude, but a commitment in the face of his men's de- <clears throat> a commitment in the face of his men's devotion not to put their lives at risk recklessly and to transfer their costly gift to the Lord. The three men remain anonymous. In this way, <clears throat> excuse me, the episode exemplifies the relationship between David and all his heroes. It typifies the attitude of all of them. It directs a spotlight on their courage, devotion, and willingness to give their lives for his kingdom. So pay attention to this. You may say, what can I do in the kingdom? I'll never be number one. I'll never be number two. I'll never be number three. You may, you, may, you, may even, you may even never get your name in the list. Here are three people who are in the list, but their names aren't there. You know why they got in the list? Because they worked together. They were three people who worked like a team. Thank you very much. <clears throat> they work like a team. And uh, so maybe, maybe there's no spotlight on what you're doing, but you're part of a team, and you will be in the Hall of Fame anyway. Now we come to two famous warriors who were incredible dudes, but... Incredible macho dudes, but they just didn't make it into the big three. Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, from Kopzael. So first of all, when David, uh, this, this is recorded in uh, chapter 21, when David was pursued so relentlessly by Saul and was cornered, he dared to go into the camp of Saul The only one who dared to go along with David was Abishai. At the end of David's reign, and this is 
When, when his son Absalom revolted, Abishai was right there to stand up for the king against the curses of Shimei. Abishai was also the leader to trusted, to trusted to deal with a troublemaker named Sheba. And in 2 Samuel 21, we read of David facing a grizzly giant descended from the Rapha who had a bronze spearhead weighing 300 shekels and also a new sword. David almost lost his life in that battle had not Abishai the hero stepped in to rescue him and kill the giant. So Abishai was an incredible man and he, he was a great hero. He was better than the three, 30, but he didn't make it into the three. Another man is Benaiah the son of Jehoiada from Cobb Zael and he has a trio of daring exploits. He does three, he's known for three incredible uh, heroic acts. First of all, he struck the two sons of Ariel of Moab, so we don't know who they were, but they were the macho men from the neighboring country, and they were their greatest military heroes, and he dispatched both of them. Secondly, he struck a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. So that part is in the parallel in Chronicles. Thirdly, he struck an Egyptian man, a fierce-looking opponent. Sort of like uh, Brad Pitt in Troy, you know. He comes out against that uh, giant and runs right up and dispatches him. So here's what... Uh, here's what uh, Beniah did, he went, against, he went against him with a club, snatched the spear from the hand of the Egyptian and killed him with his own spear. Now that's incredible. And you know what? It doesn't tell you here. It doesn't tell you that he was a high priest. That's incredible, isn't it? The high priest was also uh, a great military hero. He had a name among the three heroes. He was honored more than the 30, but he did not attain to the three. And David appointed him to his guard. Excuse me. So we have the big three. We have the unknown trio. We have the two military macho men. And now we have the list of 30 heroes of David's battle, and you will be glad to hear that I do not plan to describe in detail what is or is not known of each and every one of the men in David's hall of famous warriors. Although I can assure you that in the playground or schoolyard, children and teenagers expect their audiences to be patient while they detail even longer lists of their sport heroes. They didn't have, uh, you know, how many, pa how many cards are in your pack of baseball cards or hockey cards? Probably a lot more than 30. Generally, each person has a name and an adjective which either gives the family or clan from which he comes or the name of the town or village from which they come. That's why we have all these things 
Abiezer of Anathoth. Anathoth is a little town just over the hill from Jerusalem, and it's also the town where Jeremiah came from. So each man is given. You know, you, you have to know the town. You have to know the town where they come from. So if, if I'm in Louisville, Kentucky, and I travel up uh, I-65 and I-69 and get, get near uh, Fort Wayne, <clears throat> there's a big sign that says, James Dean lived here. I don't really know who he is. Some, some of you may remember. <clears throat> anyway, when we have a hero, we want to know the town where they come from. And the people of that town are anxious to let you know. Most of the men came from small towns and villages in the territory of Judah, which makes sense since David became king of Judah first and later, only later, he was king over all the tribes of Israel. Nonetheless, there are a few men from the territory of Benjamin and Ephraim. See that guy called Chidai from the wadis of Gaash? and even an Ammonite and a Hittite. So this is a motley crew. A little bit like Captain Cook on the ship with that Peter Pan attacked. There is a lot of local color and detail in this list. For, in verses, for example, in verses 20, 32 to 33, Jonathan, the son of Shammah, the Hararite, is probably the son of the same Shammah who is one of the big three. So one of the heroes is in the big three and, one of, and his son is in the big 30. In verse 34, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilonite, is, according to 2 Samuel 11, verse 3, he was the father of Bathsheba. The treachery of Ahithophel in the coup of Absalom was probably motivated by David's affair with his granddaughter. He was pretty ticked off by that. The exploits of Elchanan, the son of Dodo, of Bethlehem, and Sabakai, the Hushathite, are recorded in 2 Samuel 21. Lastly, I want to talk about famous warriors listed but not listed. Did you hear that? Famous warriors listed but not listed. Why is Joab not listed in David's Hall of Fame? His name his name occurs three times because uh, notice here in the, at the end, uh, the, uh, his brothers are there. The brothers of Joab, for example, verse 24, Asahel, the brother of Joab. And then in verse 36, 37, Nachri, the Be'eronite, the armor bearer of Joab. So his brothers are in there, his armor bearer is in there, but he's not there. He was desperately loyal to David and his kingdom, but he did not follow God's standards of right and wrong in establishing the kingdom and rule of David. He was ruthless and vindictive, and he used his role to avenge personal wrongs. So if you're, going, if, you're going to have to, if you're going to be a hero, you have to do it God's way. These were not the people who see something starting up that is good and successful and want to be a part of the success. These are the people who believed in David's kingdom during the long years when David had been promised the kingdom but had to live like an outlaw, 
running around the desert pursued by Saul. We are living in a similar time. The last of the family line of David is Jesus of Nazareth. Since he was raised from the dead to a power of the, an endless life, he will rule forever. His kingdom has been inaugurated, but not consummated. So David is, a, is foreshadowing the Messiah. Je like David, Jesus has been anointed king, but he hasn't come into the fullness of his kingdom and the fullness of his rule. And right now, we are the ragtag band running around the desert with Jesus who actually believe in his kingdom even though the rest of the world can't see it. The Christian church does not look like a success story at all. When all love of power is destroyed forever and all the kingdoms of this world become dust and the only kingdom which remains and rules is that of Jesus Christ, will you be in the hall of heroes because you were in at the beginning not as an interested onlooker or participant who is trying to put insurance on, several, on, on a number of growing stocks and bonds, but as one who gave 100%, who was nothing less than wholehearted. I have a picture here, I hope this will work. This is Microsoft in 1978. You know what? I was a poor seminary student. I had no money. Just think if I had put $10 down, for, if I had bet $10 on this bunch of hippies. <laughs> would you, would you, do you know how rich I would be today? Well, that's what, it, that's what the kingdom of Jesus Christ is like. You gotta be in now and you gotta be in 100%. There's the danger of being half-hearted. Let's pray.